Jewish perspective. Now, I don't think he's put that into print just yet, but it will be put into print. And uh, But you can get his videos from his ministry, REO Ministries. You can also get transcripts of it. Or you can go to his camp, Camp Shoshana, which is up in the Adirondacks Mountains of New York City. And uh, it is in New York State. And it is beautiful up there. You're about an hour from the uh, Canadian border. And you're just in the woods with the bears and, and, the, other, and the other campers. And Hattie, if she's there. And so he teaches that class there. Now, when he teaches that class, he uses two tools, and they'll be helpful here, too, because the majority of my material is coming from my times with Arnold over the years. I remember going through this in New York, in his home. I remember going through this with him up in camp numerous occasions every year that I was up there. And then I remember going with him to churches where he presents segments of it. So there's a, a lot of stuff, you know, stored in the in the brain. But I'm reviewing it with some of his tapes and all. And so a lot of his material comes out of it. What he uses, and we'd like uh, you to have, because this is the easiest way to go through this class, is uh, The Harmony of the Gospels by A.T. Robertson. Now, this is an old copy, but otherwise I'd show you the cup. But um, A.T. Robertson's work is... A, uh, an excellent work to do this with. And the reason is, what he does, you notice he has like these three columns. And each column is a different gospel. So he has Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So when he comes to an event, A.T. Robertson puts the gospels side by side, as it were, in harmony, so that when you read a given event, you get to see what Matthew says about that event, what Mark records of it, what John records, or Luke records. If John also records that event, and there are very few events that all four uh, record, then you see all four of them. But most of the time, you're not going to see it that way. You'll see John's like this, a block of material, because John's gospel is very different, as we'll see as we go through the study. So this is one tool you really need to have, because as we go through it, I'm going to be saying we're now on paragraph 39. And paragraph 39 is... Mark chapter 1, Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. And you just can't keep flipping back and forth in the Bible. You want to see it all laid out in front of you. So this is really a must to get the most out of this class. The second thing is, let me just mention, is Arnold has put together an outline of that harmony. This is an old copy that I remember having, and for some reason never wrote on it. And uh, so we can make copies of it, but uh, a, an outline is going to be provided next week that will take us through some of this material together. Now, uh, Jerry was telling me that Jean, uh, I guess, is ready to order the books. What's that? We already ordered them, and they'll be here next session. Okay, so they'll be here for the next session, and they cost twenty dollars for the book and the outline. So the suggested donation is twenty dollars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want you not to come to Bible study because of that, obviously. Uh, but um, that's the cost of the materials, and uh, we hope to have one for everyone. If you're a husband and wife and you want to share one, that's fine. You can do that. Just, just kind of a show of hands. How many of you are likely to to uh, get one of these? 
Can we just get them from Gene's office? Gene's going to have a sign-up sheet today. You keep your Gene's man in the council. Gene is also collecting the money. Gene is collecting money, so before you leave today, see Gene. And then you sign up Okay, you get no everybody else put your hands up, these are, can put your hands down. Down. So <laughs> back. Right? So 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 18, 19, 30, 31 is about what we're counting. Okay, we have we bought 30 books. <laughs> <laughs> One of you is not gonna be able to take the no, if we, we're, we're going to order more. We're going to order more because we're planning, we're planning on having more people come, and we're going to have to move this to a different room on campus. So uh, don't worry, about, don't worry about it. We'll we'll get the books. Okay. So uh, looks like we're good. The second thing that source of a lot of this information is from, it's actually a two-volume set called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by a man by the name of Alfred Edersheim. Today, I think you can get it in one volume, and I bet you through CBD you can get it for like $12, $13. I mean, it's an incredible work uh, for, for that amount. I think it's about that. Alfred Edersheim is a Jewish believer. He came to faith in the middle 1800s, 1850s, 1860s. At that time, England had what was known as the London Jew Society, which was a mission board that sought to bring the gospel to the Jewish people. And they had sent out what they oftentimes called was a committee for inquiry. And they'd send out five, six, seven guys, and they would travel throughout a given region, Europe, the Middle East, North Africa, wherever. In this particular occasion, they were sent out to, on a mission of inquiry to see where the need was with respect to getting the gospel to the Jewish people. So as they traveled around, they're praying, they're trying to see where does God want us to uh, send our missionaries and where does God want us to invest our funds. On the return trip, they went into Budapest, Hungary, and it was there that the princess of uh, the kingdom, had, who was a believer, came out to them and told them they needed to come here because of the number of Jewish people that were in her uh, her kingdom. So they sent missionaries here, and it was there that Alfred Edersheim came to faith. He went on to receive his doctorate, became a lecturer at Oxford in Septuagint and Old Testament studies, and he was given a sabbatical to work on this kind of material, and it's one of a kind. It's still a standard work, even after all these years, um, on the life of Messiah from a Jewish perspective. Another great work that, and this is not as monumental work, but to get background on what Judaism was about in the first centuries of the Christian era, C.F. Moore has a two-volume set that is um, critical and key to a study of, of this nature. And then Jacob Jocks, he is a Jewish believer, was a Jewish believer, who I uh, think was an Anglican, served in Toronto. He wrote a book called The Jewish People and Jesus Christ, which gets at a lot of Talmudic stuff, Midrashic material, um, and background, again, on the Jewish people and Jesus as a Jew. And uh, again, one of those unique works, but in messianic circles, uh, not untypical.
Another book is by Jay Parks called The Foundations of Judaism and Christianity, which also focuses on the Jewishness of the first century, the Jewishness of Christianity or the early church, the Jewishness of the life and times and ministry of, uh, of Yeshua. And then uh, Emil Schurer has a book called The Jewish People in the Times of uh, Time of Jesus. And again, it's another work that focuses on this kind of material. So these are the volumes that a lot of this material that we're going to get shared together uh, comes from. And they're just wonderful volumes, and they're very interesting because there's very little written from this perspective. And they're all scholarly works, not popular works. So it's um, they're written with an air of authority that you don't oftentimes get. Now, does anybody still need this up? Yes. yes. Okay. So I'll give you a few more moments. Not to such now, and we're not going to go like more than an hour, and Anne has the clock. Oh. <laughs> and uh, eight it's eight o'clock, eight o'clock now. Eight o'clock. We need Bob here. <laughs> it's eight o'clock, so we're not going to go till nine or so, or maybe another half, half, half hour, 45 minutes. But. Are we good now? No. some of the background issues on Jewish life in the first century. Not all of this is directly applicable to the life of Jesus, but a good deal is certainly applicable to the background uh, and times in which he lived. First of all, with respect to the Jewish dispersion, we oftentimes think of the dispersion of the Jewish people or of the diaspora is uh, another term, the Greek term for dispersion. We see it in the New Testament, by the way. P uh, Peter writes his letter, his first uh, letter, to those that are scattered. The word that he uses is the word diaspora, those that are scattered. And he's fa uh, honing in on, focusing on the Jewish believers to whom he's writing. In the New Testament, you have certain, oftentimes referred to as Messianic epistles, Hebrew Christian epistles, epistles written particularly to the Jewish people. And those are the books of James, for example, because it says written to the 12 tribes that are dispersed. Mm -hmm. That phrase itself is interesting because it suggests that the tribes of Israel were not lost. And so you hear sometimes of the lost 10 tribes. Well, James says he's writing his to the 12 tribes that are dispersed. So there's no such thing as lost tribes. By the way, in the Gospel of Luke, we'll read about Anna. Remember Simeon and Anna who received Yeshua when he's a child. It says Anna was from the tribe of Asher. It's one of the 12 tribes, one of the 10 tribes in the north. So the idea that they were lost and though taken into exile and lost their tribal identification is certainly false with respect to the first century. So, uh, the diaspora, those that are scattered, the other Hebrew Christian epistles or Messianic epistles, James, the book called Hebrews, which is a book written to the Jews, Jewish believers, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, are all letters that are particularly targeting uh, Jewish believers. And it's important to know that when trying to understand its purpose and its meaning and significance. 
Now, I only bring that up because this term dispersion or diaspora is not something foreign to us because it's found right in the, in the New Testament, right in the Brut Hadashah. But when we speak of the dispersion of the Jewish people, we're more often than not thinking of their scattering from the land of Israel into the surrounding nations. Now, that isn't something that occurred in 70 AD although we oftentimes hear that is the case, that after the fall of, of Messiah, the Jewish people are dispersed. We say that because a large, larger segment of the Jewish people were dispersed, but the Jewish people were dispersed long before that. Remember when Paul goes on his missionary journeys, he runs into Jewish people. He speaks in their synagogues all throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, all throughout Rome, and through parts of what is today Syria and Lebanon uh, in the north. So the Jewish people were already scattered. In fact, their scattering began centuries before, 720 years before the time of Yeshua. They're scattered north into Assyria and Nineveh. Right, And then 600 years before, another 120 years later, they're dispersed and taken to Babylon. And when in Babylon, only about 50,000 return. A large segment of the Jewish people remain in Babylon, become a very wealthy and prosperous community there, so they don't want to leave. And in fact, that Babylonian community was still uh, represented or at least recognizable up until the War of Independence in 1948, because when Israel declared themselves a nation and were attacked, they were attacked by well, many Arab nations, one of which were the Iraqis. And the Jewish community in Iraq was under great duress, and the Jewish uh, nation had done some rescue flights uh, over to Iraq and rescued some twenty or 30,000 Iraqi Jews. And even today, there are many Persian Jews. Uh, and there's even chief rabbis in Tehran and in Persia. Now, they don't have all that much freedom, but there are Jewish people that were there. They, they are there because they have dispersed long before 70 AD, and oftentimes when thinking about dispersion, there's an element of judgment, because when things are going well for Israel, they are gathered into the land. When things are going bad, they are scattered. And that is in one of those themes that goes throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. When Adam and Eve are obedient, they enjoy the garden. When they are disobedient, they are dispersed from the garden. When the people at the Tower of Babel are obedient, they are gathered together. When they are disobedient, they are dispersed. When Israel is disobedient or their descendants, they find themselves in Egypt. It's interesting also the direction from which the Jewish people in the Hebrew Scriptures enter the land. They always seem to enter from the east. So that when the Israelites come out of Egypt, they don't just go into the land from the south, the Negev, where they were at Kadesh Barnea. He's, and Moses is not, doesn't take them to the left to take them in from the west, sort of, but he takes them south and then up and around from what is today Jordan and crosses the Jordan River from the east. So there's always these kinds of movements and directions that you see throughout the scriptures, and uh, they sort of reflect the hand of God in either blessing, bringing the people into the land, or judgment, dispersion from the land. And certainly 70 AD was a judgment. We're going to see this in the life of Messiah, because, because of the rejection of, of Yeshua as Messiah, Israel, Matthew chapter 12, is the most important chapter for this, 
uh, matter in the Gospels because of Israel's rejection, that is, by virtue of their leadership, rejection of Yeshua as Messiah, by Matthew 12, judgment is set on the people of Israel. And thus, there is now no hope that he is going to do anything else but, or the result of his coming is going to result in anything else but judgment on his people. That's one of the reasons why he says oftentimes the miracles that he, he, he performs after this point, he will tell them not to tell anyone. And the reason he tells them not to tell anyone is because his miracles are performed to authenticate his claim that he's the Messiah. Now that he's rejected as the Messiah with respect to that claim, he says, no longer is this my miracles being done for the purpose of demonstrating I'm the Messiah. He'll do miracles for personal benefit, but now it's no longer being done to demonstrate he's the Messiah. And so he says, don't tell anyone, because this is for your personal benefit, not for my uh, testimony or my, uh, you know, in support of my claims. The result of Israel rejecting the Messiah, Yeshua tells us in Matthew 12, is that judgment now will fall and nothing will be able to turn that judgment away. And the judgment will come in the form of the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and the further dispersion of the people from the land. And so when we talk about dispersion, we think of... Israel is no longer in the land, or a significant portion of their population is no longer in the land. They've experienced the judgment of God. There's a sense of suffering because of that. Remember what Yeshua said. He said, I came to gather you as a hand in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I often wanted to gather you as a hand gathers your chicks, but you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and I say to you this, that you will no longer see me until you shall say Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When he says, I want to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, hens gather their chicks to protect them. And since they've rejected him, the protective, caring arms of the Messiah are no longer protecting them. As a result, they become uh, something of an open target, you might say, to the nations of the world that would seek to harm them and to demonstrate their alienation from God by harming God's people. So all these things begin to sort of interconnect and like a domino effect, they have uh, connections with other things that go on in the life of Messiah. The more we cover them, the more they say, ah, that makes sense because of this here and, and that there. But when we think of the diaspora, People are, uh, Israel is judged, they're taken out from the land, they experience the judgment uh, through the hands of the Gentile nations around them, and there's this sense of religious sorrow, that God ha is silent. And so, you know, that period of time between Malachi and John's ministry, the herald of the king, there's no revelation, there's no uh, writing prophet, there's no prophets. And so oftentimes scholars speak of it as 400 silent years. God isn't completely silent in the sense that he's not doing anything with Israel, but he's silent in the sense that there's no authoritative spokesperson that is sent by God for Israel like the prophets until John comes on the scene. But Josephus, and a lot of this is, is just taken right out of his, and you can read the English translation, I think this is like Antiquities, I think it was... Uh, Book 8, chapter 5, 
Uh, but it says, no nation in the world which had not among their part of the Jewish people. So even by Josephus' writings in the first century, he's already acknowledging that the Jewish people were widely dispersed. <laughs> he goes on to say the Jewish people were this his, his words, widely dispersed over all the world among its inhabitants, but yet they never found a home there. They never were accepted there. And that's true this very day, uh, and one of the reasons why the state of Israel uh, was formed. Now, when we think about the Jewish people dispersed, there are Jews are thought of with respect in the first century now with respect to being from the east or from the west. Today we speak of Jews being Ashkenazic or Sephardic, right? Ashkenazic Jews are German Jews or Europeanized Jews. Whereas Jews that are from the Mediterranean, North Africa, the Arab countries, the Middle East are spoken of, Spain are spoken of as Sephardic Jews. They pronounce Hebrew differently. And uh, so in Israel, they're really Sephardic Jews. So the pronunciation, you know, when I was growing up, it wasn't Shabbat, it was Shabbos. And, you know, that's because Shabbos is, Germa is Germanic, it's Ashkenazic, it's European. Shabbat is Sephardic, it's Middle Eastern. And you have a similar kind of thing that happens not with those terminologies and not European, but similar things uh, occur. Um, sometimes someone calls the way you pronounce something, another Jewish person, say, oh, you're a Klitsiana, or you're an Ashkenaz, and it's the way you're from the southern part of Europe. Okay. Is it, are you uh, a Sephardic, or are you considered uh, Klitsiana? Which is the correct one to be called the way you pronounce something, like you just said? Uh, where oh, I don't, I don't know. It's it's Litvak or Galiziana. Yeah. That, that, so it's just north or south. Yeah, that's, that's all. It's either Ashkenazi so or Sephardic, and then Litvak or Galiziana were places in, uh, in Eastern Europe. Oh, is that why? Yeah. Okay. I thought it was either and, you and know, Richmond or DC. No, and Litvak. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, because they said north and south. <laughs> So, with respect to, uh, in the first century, in the West, Jews were referred to as Hellenist, or Hellenized Jews. The word Helen uh, is a Greek word that means to be conformed to the language and manners and customs of the Greeks. Now, you remember Alexander the Great, when he had expanded the Greek Empire, one of the ways that he sought to control uh, his empire was by instilling its culture and its language. So that became a center focus of Alexander's uh, uh, strategy. That's the reason why, in the first century, Greek's the common language. He had so infiltrated his empire with Greek culture and the Greek language, it became what's referred to as the lingua franca, or the common language of the day. And that's why, uh, that's why the New Testament is written in Greek. And it's written in Koine Greek. It's not classical Greek. It's a very low, common kind of Greek, at least in those days. Today, it's still difficult for anyone who wants to learn it. But, um, but it was the common language of the day, and so the writers wanted everyone to read this. It wasn't written for the, you know, the uh, superior or the intellectual. It was written on the language of, of the common people. The reason for that is because Greek had permeated um, the Greek Empire, and then all of the culture of the surrounding uh, countries and nations. 
Jews, of course, are dispersed into these surrounding countries. And so they become affected by the culture in which they live. And that's true to this day. Jews in the West that were dispersed took on Greek culture. So they began to no longer speak Hebrew. And they would speak the language of the people that they were with. So they spoke Greek. It came to a point in which um, their inculcation into that Greek culture was so great that they no longer spoke Hebrew, and that meant they no longer were reading the Word of God. They would recite it in the synagogues, but most people did not know what was being said, just like Jewish people today. You go in the synagogue, you hear people reciting the Hebrew, but they don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're saying because they know how to read the language, but they don't know how to interpret or translate the language. So they don't really know. And that's what goes on in the diasporas. People are reciting the Hebrew. They're saying Hebrew prayers. They're reciting the Hebrew in the Siddur, but they don't really understand what they're saying. But the rabbis were concerned that they didn't really read the Bible anymore because it's written in Hebrew. Remember, it's not like today where we have computers and we have um, international connections on such a level that books are being read, written and people are purchasing them. Remember, books are a very valuable thing, and most are written on papyrus or uh, written on vellum or uh, on parchment, and they're in scrolls, and so they're liable to be destroyed and uh, aren't going to last very long for, you know, in terms of uh, what would be expected uh, of them. So many people could not read the Hebrew text and understand it. So the rabbis came together and said, well, what do we do? Some frowned on the idea of taking the word of God and translating it into a language of the Gentiles. But many others were saying, well, our people aren't reading it. So in around 150 years before the time of Yeshua, or 200 years before, the Septuagint developed. That's what LXX stands for. It's the Roman numeral 70. Because traditionally, we really don't know, but traditionally some 70 rabbis are said to have engaged in the work of translating the Hebrew scriptures into Greek so that people could now read it in their own language. Today, the Septuagint is very important in terms of interpreting the Bible because it gives us a sense of how the rabbis understood these passages 150 to 200 years before the time of Yeshua himself. So I remember that when I first moved into Annapolis, um, I lived in a community, an integrated community. We had African Americans, we had Hispanics from various different countries in South America or Central America, and there were Jewish people. And right around the corner was the Orthodox synagogue. Uh, in town. Now, there's only 3,000 Jews in the greater Annapolis area, the capital of, of Maryland. You had to go up to Baltimore, D.C., where you'd find maybe 90 to 100,000. But So it's a small Jewish community. And But my neighbors were Jewish. A number of my neighbors were. We became great friends, and we're still great friends. And we had keys to each other's homes, and we'd go out to dinner together. And I didn't, you know, I didn't parade my faith, but they knew. And, you know, their kids would come over and spend time with Mary Lou, and she would tell them. And little by little, they, they would hear. When I moved here, 
I was talking to my neighbor, and, you know, we were giving back keys and talking about that. And they said, so where are you going? I said, I'm heading out to Los Angeles. And they said, oh, what are you going to be doing there? I said, well, you know, I'm always careful with my words. I said, I'm going to be pastoring a body of believers out there. And I said, oh, yeah, what kind of a church is it? I said, well, it's not really a church, I guess. It's kind of a unique thing. And they said, yeah, in what way? I said, well, these are, you know, Jewish people and non-Jewish people that believe Jesus is the Messiah. but want to worship him in a Jewish way. And uh, and they said to me, and I remember Gail said to me, um, really? Well, that sounds really interesting. I'm thinking 18 years. I never spoke with her about this. <laughs> Yeah, so I said, this was really interesting. And I said, oh, you think it's interesting? Said, yeah, I think it's interesting. I said, well, their website is BethRL.org. Check it out. So the next couple of days, she said, you know, I was online. I found it to be really a neat little website. And it sounds like a great body of people that you're going out to a shepherd. And then her husband comes out, and he says, so, uh, so you're going to be the spiritual leader there. You know, he's like one of the big wigs in his synagogue. And he said, so you're going to be like the spiritual, the, you know, in synagogues, they oftentimes refer to their rabbis as spiritual leaders. You know, it's all, it's a little too guru-ish. <laughs> but I said, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, be the spiritual leader. So, you know, so it was really kind of a neat uh, interaction that we were able uh, able to develop. But in his synagogue, he's gone, they've gone through three different rabbis now, but when the, one of their earlier rabbis was there, I had called up and I said, look, uh, I'm one of the teachers, because I also taught in the Annapolis Area Christian School. So I said, called up and I said, you know, I'd like to, uh, I'm one of the teachers here in the Bible department at the Christian School, and I'd love to bring my students over for you to show them the synagogue. And he said, really, what is your name? I said, oh, Gary Dereshinsky. And he says, Dereshinsky, that's an interesting last name. What is your background? And I said, well, I'm, I'm Jewish. You know? <laughs> He said to me, what are you doing at the Christian school? I said, I said, well, I'm teaching the Bible. I'm teaching them Old Testament. I'm helping them understand it. And uh, I'd like them to come. You know, I'm trying not to have any axe to grind. I just want my kids educated. I, like, I just want my kids to come over so they can, you know, see the inside of a synagogue. None of these kids have ever been inside a synagogue. They've never seen the Torah. I wanted to see this stuff. So I thought I'd ask you if that would be... Well, before we do I'd like you to come over. I'd like to sit down and talk with you. I said, okay, that's fine. Well, you want to do this. So I go over and I sit down and I talk with him. And uh, he's on one side of the desk. And he says, yeah, thank you for coming, so on. And I said, yeah. And I said, so, so what do you want to do here? And he said, look, I just want to bring my students here. And I'd like them to see the synagogue. I want them to see the Torah schools. I want them to see, you know, what this is all about. Because many of them and their families have never gone into a synagogue. And I'd like you to show them. And he said, well, I just, you know, that's fine. But I just don't understand why you would be teaching. Why would you be teaching? <laughs> Well, I'm teaching at a Christian school because I believe that Jesus is the Savior, that he's the Messiah, and I'm teaching them these things. And I'd like them to learn something about his Jewish background. He said, I don't understand how you could believe this. I said, well, let me me just share with you one thing. This is getting into the Septuagint. Let me just share with you one thing. You know where the Bible speaks, oftentimes Christians believe, speak about Jesus being born of a virgin birth. He said, oh, yeah, I know where that is. That's like in Jeremiah somewhere, isn't it? I said, no, no, not just, he goes, I know where it is. I said, I said okay. So he said, you know? And finally I said, you know, I really think it's Isaiah 7. I mean, you know, just check. So he, 
decides to. So he's reading through it. He's reading through it, and he comes to you know the section where it says um. That's a very interesting word. It only appears seven times in the Old Testament. Everywhere it appears, it either must or can mean virgin. It never cannot mean virgin. But there are places where it must or it can mean mean it. And there's only seven of them. Two of them are in the Song of Solomon. One is in the Psalms. One is here in Isaiah. Another one is Genesis with Rebecca. She's referred to as an Alma. And, uh, and I think there may be one other somewhere that I'm missing. But so he's looking at that. He says, yeah, well, Alma just means a young maiden. I said, you know, it can't mean young maiden. It only appears seven times where it means nothing. But apart from that, have you ever looked at the Septuagint on this? And he said, yeah, I looked at the Septuagint. He pulls the Septuagint out, and he opens it up. And in the Septuagint is the Greek word Parthenos. And the Greek word Parthenos means virgin. Doesn't mean young woman. Doesn't mean nice woman. It doesn't mean... <laughs> It's a very deliberate term. And I said, now that's written like 150 years before the time of Jesus. I mean, they had no axe to grind in translate. So it suggests to me that those Jewish people that translated that, they were honest with the word Alma, and they understood it meant virgin. That's how I understand it, and that's why I believe this. And he said, I don't see how you can believe it. And I said, well, listen, all I want is to bring my kids here. You know, and he's looking at me like I have another motive. I said, you can tell them anything you want. You can tell them why you don't believe in Jesus. I really don't care. I won't even say a word. I just want you to bring them here. I'll bring them here. And I just want you to show them. He said, all right, I'm willing to do that. We set up a date. I had like 30 parents. They've never been in a synagogue. They wanted to go. I took all my students, 125 of them, and we packed into the synagogue. And the guy was great. He was just great. You know, he comes up to me, shoots my hand, welcome, thank you for coming. He welcomes everybody there. And I couldn't believe this, but he had my students. I mean, I wouldn't do anything like this, you know. And knowing my students, the way I, now he didn't know them. But if he knew them, he never would have done this. But he had the students line up in the uh, aisle. And he had one of the students take one roll of the Torah scroll and roll it out all the way to the end while everybody had their hands under it so they all could feel it without getting their hands on the, on the uh, ink. You know? And then he said, point to any way you want in the text. I'll read it and translate it so you see it. Well, he really wowed them doing all of that. And then he showed them all, all the stuff and, and he thanked us for coming. Never said anything about not believing in Jesus or believing in whatever. He just spoke about what the synagogue was. And that's all I wanted to happen. But the Septuagint thing is for real. And it develops because of Jews in the diaspora. Now that Septuagint is important because when you get into the New Testament, some of the uh, passages that are quoted you know, oftentimes Jewish people will say to you, well, that's not what the Hebrew text says, and they're right. It's not. Because what's being quoted is the way it's quoted in the Septuagint. And so that's one of the reasons why there's differences. But um, So that becomes an important point with respect to the first century. It's also here that you have the beginnings of the allegorical method of interpretation, where everything is a symbol and nothing really means what it is. Oftentimes that's attributed to the early church, 
And cer- certainly the early first, second, th- not first, but fourth, fifth, sixth century church uh, leaders begin to adopt a very strong allegorical method of interpretation which excludes much of the promises of God to Israel. But much of that style of allegorical interpretation occurs in the diaspora among the Jewish people themselves. And one individual by the name of Philo of Alexandria, an important philosopher uh, of the era, was very much in tune with that way of interpreting the Hebrew Scriptures. In the East, Jewish people that were scattered to the East were referred to as Hebrews. They looked down on the Hellenistic Jews because they didn't know Hebrew. They were now engulfed in the culture of, of Gentiles. And they weren't as scrupulous about their religious behavior. And they were outside the land. And we know that the Hebrew scriptures show being outside is to be in a, in a state of alienation, separation, a period, an era of judgment. So the further you get outside the land is uh, from those that are near or in the land, well, there's a feud that begins uh, to develop. And so they had just this open contempt for the Hellenists, the land to the, and one of the things they pride themselves in, okay, we're dispersed too, but at least we're dispersed into the land that was once the territory of the King David. You know, we were not dispersed into the land of the Greeks, you know, but rather into the land of the Babylonians. Well, you know, there was a part of that was once under David's authority. They also boasted that they had rebuilt one of their, or I should say, built one of their synagogues using the stones of the temple. Um, and so they said, you know, so we have connections that you do, sort of a one-upmanship kind of thing. They were a wealthier body of people. They were a larger body of people. And so all those things, um, they sought to uh, elevate themselves as a result. In the East, they also prided themselves in the fact that they resisted Rome, 63 BC. 63 is when Pompey rides into Jerusalem and claims Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and Galilee as a Roman province in 63. And, uh, but the Jews and the Jews in the land of Israel, they had to capitulate right away. But those that were outside, they resisted Rome and by AD 40, Rome gives up in trying to expand their empire to engulf them. So they saw themselves as resisting Rome and winning. Mm-hmm. And it's also in the East that the Mishnah originates. It's also here that the Midrash, those means to investigate, uh, various commentaries begin to form. The Mishnah is, is a portion of the Talmud is made up of two parts, the Mishnah and the Gomorrah. The Mishnah is, a, is sort of a literal commentary on the law. The Gemara are stories uh, or parables that are meant to help um, uh, personalize it and to give some practical advice with respect to obeying the law with regard to how the Mishnah suggests one ought to obey. And the Midrash were commentaries that appeared alongside of the Mishnah and the Gemara, equaling the Talmud. So, this begins to emerge in the East, in Babylon. And so, actually, two Talmuds appear. There's the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. Babylonian Talmud is older, it's bigger, and it's uh, more complete. So it's perceived or seen as more authoritative than the thoughts and ideas that are conveyed in the Jerusalem Talmud. I'm sorry. The Talmud is made up of two parts, the Mishnah and the Gemara. 
The Mishnah is a commentary on the law. Gemara are stories, parables, explanations as to how to implement those interpret, interpretive analysis into one's life. So it's it's less um, authoritative, you might say. It's it's two steps removed from the law itself. Well, um, okay. Um, I'm not certain you're right on that or part. The Chabadniks. Oh, the Chabadniks. Okay. Babylonia has more prestige because it is actually younger. Okay. Certainly, it's, it's bigger. To yes, it is. Follow the preference. Okay. We'll have to look at that. Maybe some of the traditions found in Jerusalem Talmud are said to go back before. So that's true. I know you'll be getting into this quite a bit as we embark on the study. But this, the, the Mishnah is so important when we understand the New Testament and the conflict that Yeshua had with the Pharisees um, with regard to the interpretation of the law. They were committed to following many of the oral traditions of the Mishnah, and his conflict with them was not over law of Moses, Moses, but rather over their interpretation or application of the mission. Yeah, one of the key phrases in the Testament is the uh, tradition of the elders, you know, is what comes up. And so, or, or sometimes Yeshua will say, you have heard it said, but I say it to you. When he says you have heard it said, he's not referring to what Moses wrote. He's referring, like you said, to what the elders have said or embraced as articulated and later written down in the Mishnah. Keep in mind, the Mishnah does not become complete until centuries after the time of Yeshua. But the ideas that will be uh, embodied in those documents are circulating, certainly the circulate. And what the rabbis begin to do in order to assume more and more authority is they suggest that when the law was given at Mount Sinai, there are actually two laws were given. The written law was given, and the oral law was given. And the oral law, and maybe this is what the Chabadniks are referred to, the oral law, which descends from Mount Sinai along with the written law, eventually becomes codified and embodied in the documents known as the Jerusalem and the Babylonian Talmud. So to Orthodox Jews, the Talmud is, is parallel to the written law. Bible. The difference is, I think, was with the Gemara. I think Yudah Hanasi was a grandson of Yudah Hanasi. He declared Mishnah closed 280. Okay. He said, that's it. I'm tired. <laughs> 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 Almost on. And then he did 200 to 500, I think, was Babylon. Oh, okay. 580 Gemara was finished. Okay, cool. Uh, that's good. Um, okay, so we're just seeing some differences, you know, between how Jews looked at each other. It wasn't monolithic. It wasn't the kind of thing that was uh, all Jews were this. There's great variety and conflict even among within themselves. And Yeshua uh, is another one of those entities that causes conflict within the Jewish community. So let's just take a look at some of the Jewish sects. Now, the scribes are not a sect. Um, or a party per se, but I thought I would just throw them in here. First of all, the scribes, when you read about lawyers, you know, we're not talking about 
you know, defense lawyers, talking about legal scholars, you know, scholars of the Mosaic law. And so they are, sometimes the scripture refers to them as lawyers, but they were the ultimate authority in all questions of faith and practice. Now, they weren't necessarily Pharisees either, either, uh, but the majority of them certainly were because of the focus on the law, whereas the Sadducees, the focus was more on the temple and worship. But he was an exegete or teacher of the law. To exegete means to take out of. You know, sometimes you read words like um, uh, eisegesis, which is you read into the text what you like to see there. Exegesis means to take out of the text what is there. You know, so one of the jobs of a good Bible student is to learn what is there and not to impose something on the text that we would like to see or we would like it to mean. Um, so it's important that, you know, so that's what that term means to suggest. But he was also stood as a judge in ecclesiastical tribunals, uh, so as to hold positions in the Sanhedrin, for example, in the first century. He had a position of status and recognition. This was like an office, a scribe. And in the early goings, until the law was all codified and complete, his task was to establish the contents of the written law, the 613 commandments. And they divided these 613 commandments into two parts, the positive and the negative. The negative commandments are 365, and the positive commandments are 248. So the negative would be like, thou shalt not, and the positive would be, thou shalt. <laughs> and the rabbi said that the um, that women were required to obey the negative commandments, thou shalt not, but they were not required to obey the positive commandments, the, the thou shalt's. So when they say, you know, for example, a commandment like, you shall wear fringes, that's why women are not expected to wear the tallest or fringes, because they're not held to the positive commandments, they're held to the negative, thou shalt not kill, no matter what your husband does. <laughs> His early task was to establish the contents of the written Torah, 613. And by the way, to kill, of course, means to murder. <laughs> The Pharisees, the word Hasidim comes from them, means God's loyal ones or separate ones. And the name first appears in the time of the Hasmonean kings. That's the time just after the period of the revolt of the Maccabees against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. You have for a very brief era. I'm going to say, and Mitch, correct me wrong, somewhere around 40 years or so, where Israel is independent. You know, up until that time, they're subjugated by the Babylonians, they're subjugated by uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, then by the Persians with Cyrus, and then by the Greeks with Alexander. Then when Alexander dies, he's only like 30 years old, and his empire is divided among them. There's all kinds of inner feuds. And then you have among the Seleucids, Antiochus Epiphanes, who will wage war with the Ptolemies in Egypt in the south. And when the Maccabees uh, revolt and gain independence from the Greco-Syrians that were dominating them at that time, they then set up Hasmonean leaders. 
Hasmonean kings. And it's in that context that the term Pharisees first appear. That's like around 170, 170 years before the time of Yeshua. That era will last maybe, I'm going to say, 40 years at most. And then they're dominated by Rome. The Pharisees, though they always appear like they are in control of everything in Israel, they're the minority group uh, during the time of Herod. As said by Josephus, he says that there are only about 6,000. It is interesting, even in the land of Israel, the Orthodox are a small minority, but they wield such great influence and power. And so there's, you know, it's always important for a given government to have the Orthodox on their side in order to have a coalition. And not unlike, sort of, what went on in the first century. Small numbers, not uh, a large body of people, but nevertheless exhibited a great influence. There was a bitter relationship between them and the Amhaarats, the common people, the people of the land. And so, you know, they looked down their noses at the common people. And the common people didn't want anything to do uh, with the Pharisees. Uh, it's one of the reasons, I think, that people were attracted to Yeshua. He drew large crowds. Because though he spoke about God and having a relationship with God, it was not anything like the Pharisees that lorded it over the people. But rather it was one of uh, a loving relationship. The Pharisees believed the Babylonian exile was caused by Israel's failure to keep the law. And as a result of not keeping the law, they were sent into exile. That being the case, that drives every, everything that they did. You know, we need to be keeping these commandments, otherwise the judgment of God will continue to fall uh, upon us. So in an attempt to keep from disobeying the law, they built what is referred to as a hedge around the law. And the hedge was like a series of disciplines that would keep one from breaking the law. It was a means of interpreting and supplementing the law so that it would be nearly or impossible to break, either by accident or by ignorance. So when the law says you cannot work, you know, the big question is what constitutes work? I mean, at what point does pleasure become work. And so they said, for example, walking. Well, everybody's got to walk, but at what point are you walking too much? And so they, des they de determine that X number of feet, let's just call it a mile, is as far as you could walk, and that's it. But then there are means by which there is sort of the circumventing of that law without breaking that law. So as I share with you, my friends from across the street, Gail and Mike, he was telling me in conversation before I came, he said, you know, our congregation is getting ready to build an Erev in Annapolis. What's an Erev, you ask? Well, an Erev, it, oftentimes, an Erev is seen as a pole with a wire, line, or cable that is strewn throughout the community. And so what happened in the first century was the rabbis were asked, you know, how far can you walk? They said about a mile from your home. So the question is, what constitutes your home? And they said, your home is wherever your possessions are. So people would carry their possessions and drop one off. Stretch it out. Today, what 
what Jewish people do is they create the Orthodox, they create an Arab. The Arab is a cable. As long as you are within one, you know, within that cable that can go throughout your holy community, say 10 miles around, as long as you walk that line, you're never walking a mile from your home because the Arab is part of your home and thus you can walk for miles. That's what the hedge was meant to do. It was a way to supplement the law and, and thereby circumventing it. We read about Korban in the life of Messiah, which is another means of dedicating something to family and thus not taking care of your mother and father, and thereby you break the law without breaking the law. But Yeshua holds them accountable and says, you are breaking the law, whatever you might otherwise think. So all these developments formed what refers to the as the oral law. We talked about that before. The written law is what we find in the Bible. The oral law is what I remember speaking with some uh, Chabadniks in Newark Airport, handing out these literature, you know, and they came off the planes and they're talking and um, and uh, and so uh, in conversation, speaking about the oral law, I said, "How do you know the oral law is given from God?" He said, "Think of it this way." Can you imagine having a Monopoly game without the instructions? How would you play Monopoly if you didn't have the instructions? Would God give us 613 commandments without instructions? I said, the 613 commandments are the instructions. He said, no, 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 no. Those, that's just the game. What we need are the instructions to live the game. And that's what the oral law has become, a supplement to the written law so that we can obey uh, the written law. That's why it's so interesting. Moses says in Deuteronomy, Paul quotes him in the book of Romans, the law is not so high that we need somebody to bring it down. It's not so low that we need somebody to bring it up. His point is that it's right there in our midst. We can do it. And it's and that's what Paul says as well. And then he goes on to say the law is holy, just, and good. The problem is not with the law, nor its clarity, nor what it expects of us. The problem is our sin that keeps us from doing what God would have us to do. So it doesn't need instructions, it just needs a pure heart. And uh, that's why Messiah had to come. So being convinced they had the right interpretation of the law, they, they claimed that these were the traditions of the elders which came from God through Moses on Mount Sinai. Now the Sadducees, the origin of their name is disputed. Some attach it to Zadok, one of the priests during Solomon's uh, reign, and regard as part of the pure priestly line. Nearly all the Sadducees were priests. I remember one of my New Testament professors, colleagues over at the school. I, I just, you know, <clears throat> I was, you know, treated very differently than the other teachers. So it was sort of like, oh, that's just Gary. Don't, you know, <laughs> it's just up to one of his things again. So when I didn't have a class, or even sometimes when I did have a class, I'd say to my students, just hold on one minute. I'd walk out of my class, I'd go into the other class, and I'd sit down, and I'd just ask the students how this teacher was doing. <laughs> because, you know, if he wasn't doing too well, then, you know, they might like to come into my class or just go on, you know, a break. So, I, 
just just me. So I remember once I went into the classroom and I opened the door and I looked at, at the, the teacher. He looked at me and says, he's looking at me like this, what now? I said, yeah, I just wanted to come in and see how you're teaching. And so he went on in his lesson. He was talking about the Sadducees. And he said, the Sadducees are easy to remember because they were sad, you see. <laughs> And I said, I, I said to the students, you guys better come with me. This is going nowhere. Anyway, I just talked to that. I just talked to that teacher, and uh, I said, how are things going? He said, since you left, things are going great. So they dominated, by the way, the Sadducees dominated the Sanhedrin during the Herods of Rome. And of course, because their focus was on the temple, when the temple's destroyed, their movement goes with it. So unless the temple is revived and rebuilt, the Sadducean uh, sect really had no place. Now, they, uh, these are some of their beliefs. They denied the permanent validity of any but the written law. So they rejected the Pharisaical idea of an oral law. They denied belief in the soul, in the afterlife, in the resurrection, rewards, retribution, angels, and demons. And they believed in free choice. They were our ancient Arminians. You know, you know the difference between Arminius and Calvin? Arminius, Jacobus Arminius, he was a reformer about 80 years after Calvin. And Calvin was a reformer in Switzerland, French in background, but a reformer in Switzerland. And of course, Calvin is known for reformed theology. And we know reformed theology by the flower tulip, right? Those are the five views of reformed theology. Total depravity. Every man and woman is lost. Humanity is, is dead in trespass and sins. Totally uh, depravity. Uh, the U stands for unconditional election. God chooses, and his choice is based freely on his grace, unconditionally. L stands for limited atonement. God chooses whom he chooses to be saved. Then when the Messiah died, he just died for that. So it's a limited atonement. It's an atonement for the elect, not for the world. And uh, they believe that the I stands for irresistible grace, which means if God calls you, you can't resist because his grace is irresistible. And the P stands for perseverance of the saints. That if he calls you and elects you and he has died for you and he has um, put his grace within you, you're going to persevere. Doesn't mean you want problems, but you will persevere. Man. So that's, that's reformed theology. Jacobus Arminius, about 80 years later, he didn't like a lot of those things. He wanted them clarified. So Arminius believed in the freedom of the will to receive or reject God. And so it's sort of the opposite of Calvinism. So today, certain churches, Nazarene church, um, holiness churches, generally speaking, some of these have got others, would be Arminian. If they believe you can lose your salvation, they are Arminian, which means they are believing in the teachings, or at least something of the teachings of Jacobus Arminius. Not Armenians. Armenians are <laughs> Arminians and Calvinists, right? And that's the conflict. This is a similar kind of thing. They were your Arminians of Judaism. They believed in free choice. Whereas the Pharisees believed in a certain sense of fate, God is sovereign. They would be more your Calvinists. Of course, you know, um, you know these stories, right? That when a Calvinist goes up the stairs, he falls down, or I should say, uh, an Arminian goes up the stairs, he falls down. When he gets up, he says, Jay, I gotta watch where I'm going next time. 
Calvinist went up the stairs and fell down. He said, Gee, I'm glad that's over with. <laughs> and then, as I said, you know, the Calvinist, their flower is the tulip. Right? We just went through it. Yes. The Arminian flower is the daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. <laughs> those are all those kinds of things. He said, I've seen the church too. <laughs> But it helps to clarify. Now, the, so anyway, those are the uh, Sadducees. The Essenes, these guys are really pretty interesting. I learned some new things about them I had not known before until I started going through all my books again. And, uh, but I realized that they learned that they flourished for about 100 years. And uh, Philo, the uh, Alexandrian Jewish scholar who embraced allegorical interpretation and all that, Mitch briefly mentioned him, about 100, 200 years before the time of Yeshua. Uh, he writes of them, about 100 years, in his discussion, that only the true, in his discussion of what constitutes a free man, he says, only a truly good man is truly free. So that freedom for, for Philo is embodied in character and not just ability to choose. The kinds of choices you make. And it sounds a lot like Paul, because he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. That's a slave. When you do the things you want to do, and if they're good things that you want to do, then you're truly free. Otherwise, you're enslaved to bad passions and things like that. But in that context of speaking of what constitutes freedom, which he says has to do with goodness, he speaks about the Essenes as good people as good individuals in our community. He says they numbered about 4,000 and that they paid a scrupulous attention to ceremonial purity. We know that they were into a lot of, based on their writings in the Dead Sea and also the archaeological remains of the Dead Sea, that there were a lot of mikvahs or ritual baths. And thus their ceremonial purity had uh, this bathing kind of thing and immersing. Baptizing, you might say. And he says they hold all their property in common. So they're sort of like the kibbutzim of uh, when uh, Israel first established them. They didn't get into animal sacrifices, they practiced celibacy. They had no slaves. At a time, by the way, I don't know if you're familiar, but in Rome, do you realize that three quarters of every citizen in Rome was a slave? 75% of the people of Rome were slaves. When we get into some things, we'll talk a lot, uh, a lot more about that. But the Romans, man, they, they're just an awesome empire to be thinking about. You know the Colosseum? Mm. You know, it's the Jewish people that built the Colosseum. You know that. Yeah. When the uh, Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, it was Vespasian. His son, Titus, is the one who led the 10th Legion. He was emperor. And he was so fed up with the Jewish revolt, went on from 66 through 73. And for three years, he kept the 10th Legion at bay in Masada. They were not happy people up there when they got to the top. That when he got hold of whatever Jews remained, he killed over a million and a half. And the largest number of Jewish people killed up until the time of the Holocaust. A million and a half by uh, a Roman emperor. And so he was so fed up that he took the Jewish slaves and he worked them to death in building the Colosseum. And so uh, they they brought all this, them back and forced them to build that. And it uh, was the tallest structure in Rome for centuries. Uh, and, of course, Vespasian wanted to be a model of his power and his might. And he died before it was even complete. 
And to this day, they're still trying to figure out a lot of things uh, about it. But just an incredible, incredible thing. But the Romans could never have built all the things they built without slavery. You know, it was because of slaves that they were able to do that. Um, they made Rome a premier city because of the aqueducts. You know, they had aqueducts. Believe that is unbelievable. Aqueducts, some of which were over 40 miles long. Well, where are they going to get water from? The mountains. The mountains are like way up there. So they had to get these aqueducts that they built that had to be built on gradient. Every hundred feet, it was an inch gradient. A hundred feet. You know, you just measure the whole thing for 40 miles. And if it was through a mountain, they chiseled through the mountain. Just got the slaves and said, start digging. And they just dig right through that mountain. Over, get this, over 2 million gallons of water every day were pumped into the city of Rome. And they were so uh, remarkable in their building of aqueducts and uh, building of water systems that they actually had, over 2,000 years ago, hot and cold running water to the homes of nobles in Rome. Just, just incredible uh, kinds of things that uh, they are. <laughs> I just want to get through this and then we're done. Oh my. Oh my. Is it not here? No worries. Keep going. Are we doing okay? We're doing great. Uh, we're just getting started. We're just getting warmed up. They also, the Essenes, they made provision for those in their community that could not work or were sick. They made no oaths. They took no part in military or commercial activities. He says they cultivated all the virtues. Pliny the Elder, Roman historian, he says they lived on the west side of the Dead Sea above En Gedi. And of course, around 1948, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we also discovered re remains of their community. He says they were there for countless generations, though we're not sure he's right about that. And he says that says many regularly joined their ranks just out of the sheer weariness of life. They're just so fed up and frustrated with life, they said, I'm going to go down there. <laughs> last one, the Zealots. I think it's the last one. <laughs> they say it was founded by Ju Julius the Galilean. He led a revolt against Rome in A.D. 6. And they opposed the payment of Israel to this to a pagan emperor who take our money and use it for uh, you know things that would be contrary to our own people. They were called zealous because they followed the example of Matthias who rebelled against the Greeks during the time of Hanukkah because they manifested a zeal for the law. The book of Daniel, who speaks of them, said the people who know their God will do, this is King James, and will do exploits. And so the idea they, of them knowing their God, is interesting that here they're spoken of as having zeal for the law of God. They also appeal to Phineas, who exhibited zeal when he needed uh, out judgment on those that opposed Moses. They engaged the Romans throughout the Jewish revolt. And of course they 
fell atop of Masada in May of AD 73. Of course, one of Yeshua's disciples was a zealot, Simon. Okay, here's our, our last ethic. I hope it is. Um, in regard to all of these sects, here's something that all of these Jewish groups held in common. They all regard the uniqueness of Israel and Jerusalem, that they never gave up on the land, never gave up on the city of Jerusalem. Jew- Jerusalem was their common center. And you see this in, uh, in John chapter 4 when Yeshua is with the woman at the well. She said, uh, you know, something what we thought would worship in Jerusalem. He said, uh, the day is coming when, you know, yeah, we will not worship on this mountain or any other place. I can't remember the day. Daniel always prayed facing west. He was in the Babylonian captivity, so facing west enabled him to face Jerusalem. And the Hebrew scriptures closed with the cry, let us go up. You know, the, the Hebrew scriptures, the last book of the Bible is Chronicles. And the last verse is, let us go up. And uh, that's so crafted because of the Jewish sentiment toward Jerusalem and Israel. They even had a stronger belief in the Messiah's coming. And there are three things that they all held in common regarding his coming. When he came, he would restore Israel's kingdom. So you're thinking of David's reign. You're thinking of the reign of the northern kings of Israel. There was a kingdom that Israel possessed. And so they said, when he comes, Israel's kingdom will be restored. Those that are dispersed, that's where we started in from when we talked about the uh, backgrounds. Those that are dispersed would be regathered, and not just from any one country, but from the four corners of the earth. From the north, south, east, and west, I think Jeremiah says, wherever, he goes on to say, wherever the Lord has scattered them. And they all speak about the coming reign of Israel's king, the son of David. There was a common prayer, still in the Siddurs today, proclaimed by thy loud trumpet of deliverance and raise up a banner to gather our dispersed and gather us together from the four corners of the earth. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who gathers the outcasts of thy people. And so they all had this hope. There may have been things that distinguished them, but there were things that unified them. And it was this common hope. And all the different views of the sign that's coming agree with these following ideas. Number one, that there would be the deliverance from Israel from their oppressors. That Israel would be restored. Not just um, regathered, but also spiritually restored that they would have walk with God. They would know it. They also speak that Israel will uh, one day be glorified. The prophets say she will no longer be the tail of the nations, but the head. Zechariah says, ten men shall grant the coat of him that is a Jew, and say, let us go with you, for we have heard God is with you. And so there is a glory that comes upon the people of Israel, it's the glory of God's presence, but it descends upon them, and all the world knows the, this is the people of God, and we want to go with you to worship him. And they all believe that there would be a coming Messiah to bring this about. And these beliefs provided the Jewish people with the following. When they worshipped, it provided them with meaning. That there was a God who would answer their prayers and bring about the desires of their heart. 
It enabled them to have patience in suffering because then they knew that their suffering was only for a time. It was temporary. And there would come a time when their suffering would end. These beliefs helped them and reinforced that they were different from the nations of the world. There were things, uh, matters about which they were similar, but there were matters about which they were distinct. We have the hope that our kingdom will be restored, that our king will come, etc. And it was the basis for fixing their hearts on Jerusalem, so that there was always this fixation with the city of Jerusalem. That's why, by the way, since the destruction of the temple, that whenever there's a Jewish festival, there's always, or occasion, there's always something to take away the joy, because that goes on. And the reason is, as long as Jerusalem, is, or the temple is not built in Jerusalem, our joy, no matter how wonderful the experience, cannot be complete or full. And that's why they break the glass at the wedding. Because that's supposed to be a moment of remembrance of the destruction of the temple. It's like a negative thing. That's why in Jewish homes, there's always there's supposed to be an Orthodox, there's always a wall that is left unfinished and just kept undecorated. Because remember, the temple has been destroyed. So there's always something that reminds us, don't rejoice too much because God's house has not been established. And then lastly, as we get into the life of Messiah, it's important that we know something of the geography. Um, you'll see that A.T. Robertson's harmony is organized around the geographical movements of the Messiah. So they talk about his Judean ministry, his later Judean ministry, his Perean ministry, and it's all geographical. Nothing wrong with that, but it may not be the best way to organize the life of Messiah. I think the best way is more thematically around who Yeshua is, the King of Israel. And so that's the uh, the manner in which Arnold's going to proceed, and that's the way we'll follow him. So in the northern part of Israel, and you can see any map in the Bible or whatever, that's the land region of Galilee. In the center is Samaria, called Samaria because the northern kingdom of Israel had their capital city, Samaria, in that region in the land of Israel. In the south, it's Judea. Uh, it's just an, a Greek or Romanized form of the word Judah. In the far south was Idumea. Of course, that's where Herod Antipas was from. In, in, he was an Idumean. He was sort of a, a combination of Esau and uh, Ishmael and maybe some Jewish connection there, but he was not Jewish in the formal sense of the word. He was Idumean, even though his father is referred to as king of the Jews. Herod the Great was not a Jew. Uh, Perea, which was to the east, um, in the southern part of the Dead Sea, to the east, ancient uh, land of Edom, parts of Moab, or Perea, you come north into what would be um, the region of Gilead in the Old Testament, on the opposite side by the, um, we would say by the, um, what's the cliffs area that looks over the Sea of Galilee? No, the, where the Syrians had control. What's that? The Golan Heights. That region and further north is the area of Decapolis, like a ten-city Decapolis, ten-city region. Uh, Ichuria was a little further north. All these cities are made reference to 
in the New Testament with regard to the life, uh, life of Messiah. One last thing, directions. When you uh, look in the Bible, you'll find that directions are always given with respect to Jerusalem. So you always go down from Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. So if you're, if Messiah is in Jerusalem and he's headed north to Galilee, he's going down to Galilee. And if he's in Judea or in in Judea, and he's going north to Jerusalem, he's going up to Jerusalem. Or even if he's in Gap, he's going up to Jerusalem. Or if he's by the Mediterranean, he's going up to Jerusalem. Everything this way is up, everything that way is down. And so you'll see that reflected in uh, the New Testament as well. Now with that, I think we, we can get into the first passage, which is in the so what you can do is read, very simple, for the next two weeks, meditate on Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You don't meditate on it every day, but that's what you want to look at uh, in preparation. That's where we're going to go, and hopefully get through Luke verses 1 to 4. You can also look at the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, Matthew 1, Luke chapter 3. And uh, you can also look at John chapter 1. Those are the passages that are going to come up next week. Hopefully we'll have the books by then. We'll have the outline. And uh, and hopefully we won't be this late. Okay. <laughs> well, let me, uh, let me just close with prayer.